and welcome to the Luke Miller Podcast. I'm glad that you're able to join me today. On this week's episode, we're finishing up our Easter series by looking at the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. We've been following the journey of Jesus over his last 12 hours before he's crucified, and now I want to take a look at the significance of that death as well by jumping into the Old Testament and looking at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. We're going to go through it in detail and take a look at what it means in the New Testament perspective. So grab your Bibles, jump all the way to almost the beginning, to Leviticus, and let's dive in. So today we find ourselves in Leviticus, and there's a lot of significance that can be seen in the observance of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is uh, the English translation for the Hebrew, Yom Kippur. And Kippur is the Hebrew word kofor kafar, meaning to cover. Specifically, atonement refers to God covering our sin. And Yom Kippur fell on the 10th day of Tishri, which is the seventh Hebrew month. And it was observed between the the festival of the Feast of Trumpets on Tishri 1, which is the head of the new year, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Tishri the 15th, which is remembering the time that the people of Israel came out of Egypt and God, and they lived in tents in the wilderness and God provided for them. And so it's listed among the seven feasts, although it wasn't a feast, uh, and it says, though, on this day, the Lord said, you must deny yourselves. And the day was devoted to fasting and praying and repenting of the previous year's sins. Now, there's three passages, actually, that give instruction for the high priest. One is in Leviticus 16, where we find ourselves today. The other is in Leviticus 23. And then the sacrifices that have to be made are found in Numbers chapter 29. Now, there's different, there's many practical significances to the Day of Atonements for Israel. And, and one of the first things that I think it's important for us to understand is the preparation for the services. The Jewish day began at 6 p.m., but the service for Yom Kippur started the next morning. It followed the morning service in the afternoon. And on this day, the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and stand before God. So it was crucial he would be ritually clean and qualified to do his duties. Now, to ensure this, the high priest was required to leave his home one week before Yom Kippur to stay in the high priest's headquarters inside the temple. During this week, he was he was twice sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer just in case he, he had become unclean. This was the cleansing process for ceremonial defilement on how to make yourself clean, and that's found in Numbers chapter 19. Also, all his duties for Yom Kippur were rehearsed because it had to be very, very specific. Any other day, the high priest washed his hands and his feet uh, before performing his duties. But on Yom Kippur, he had to totally immerse himself in a special golden bath, a mikvah, as it's called. His purple robe was hemmed with tiny golden bells, and over the top of his robe, he wore a golden breastplate, studded with 12 precious stones as a reminder of the 12 tribes of Israel before God. But this day, he wore garments woven from white linen that were never worn again. Once dressed, he he washed his hands and his feet for the morning service, the regular daily sacrifice. 
Then he returned to his chamber to change into his white linen garments. And on this day, he changed clothing five different times. And each time he washed his hands and his feet, removed his garments, and totally immersed his body to be cleansed, put on a change of clothing, and washed his hands and his feet again. Now, this is going to seem like a lot, but as we learn about it, I really think that, and I know that one of the purposes when we look at worship in the Old Testament is the preparation for worship. Dare I say, it's not showing up 10 minutes late for church. Uh, it's so much of it is preparing yourself, and in this case, preparing yourself the day before, in Yom Kippur's case, the week before, for the worship of God that you're going to do. And it goes even further than that, uh, which is then there's this practical significance is actually presenting the sacrifices. The covering of sin was a blood sacrifice of an atonement animal. And the author of the Feast of the Lord tell, uh, tell of being asked why God demanded blood and not any other uh, bodily fluid like sweat or tears. And in Leviticus chapter 17, it says, For the life of all creatures is in the blood, and I have given, given it to you to make atonement or covering for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Sweat and tears speak of effort and work, which can never cover our sin. Atonement isn't earned or deserved. And so that's why we don't see that being used. It's granted, but only after God, God's justice has been satisfied, which demands payment for sin. And the payment is death. Since life is in the blood and the sacrifice for sin must be a blood sacrifice. And Yom Kippur required an increase in animal sacrifices. Beside from the daily offerings, there were other offerings that were made. These included a bull, a ram, seven lambs for the people, a ram for the priesthood. And again, this is all in Numbers chapter 29. The main reason for all of these sacrifices, again, this was because the sacrifices were an atonement for the previous year's sins of an entire nation. Now, moving further into Yom Kippur, we see that Yom Kippur service featured two different goats, identical in size, color, and value. That's very important. Two lots were placed in a golden vessel. One was inscribed for God, and the other was for Azazel. All right, the scapegoat, as we've uh, as we talked about it. Now, the high priest shook the vessel, randomly took one in each hand, and held them on the goat's foreheads to determine the outcome. He declared them a sin offering to the Lord, and the two goats were viewed together as one singular offering. Scholars actually say Azazel comes from the the Hebrew word Azel, meaning to escape. Uh, this had led people to be called or led it to be called the scapegoat. For it escaped death and was driven into the wilderness. And the high priest laid his hands on the head, confessing the sins of the people. And the scapegoat was led out through the eastern gate about 12 miles or 10 miles into the wilderness. And the goat determined for God was offered as a sin offering. Now, while the scapegoat was taken into the wilderness and the people waited word it had been accomplished, uh, the service continued. The high priest finished sacrificing the bull and the goat on the altar. Then he addressed the people, reading from Leviticus passages and quoting the Numbers passage by heart, verifying all commands had been carrying out. Finally, 
the remaining offerings for Yom Kippur were offered. He then bathed for the fifth time and changed into his golden garments. He would perform the regular service and Yom Kippur ended. Now, that's walking through the general Yom Kippur day. And again, as I've kind of pointed out, part of it is understanding that there is preparation for worship. It is not just something that you show up to. It's something that you ask God to prepare your heart for. One of the nice things about the Jewish calendar is the day starts at 6 p.m. or as the sun goes down. And so people find themselves preparing themselves for worship a little sooner and getting ready for that. And they're getting ready for Sabbath. If you look at Shabbat or Sabbath uh, in even modern-day Israel, you see that there is a large amount of preparation that takes place throughout the day. And I really believe that part of this is to say, are you intentional in sorry, intentional about the ways that you're worshiping? If you go to a Shabbat dinner and because of the rules of the Sabbath, you're not able to cook or light a fire once Sabbath has started. So during the day, up until 6 p.m., usually the house is preparing itself, cooking all the food, getting it so it is ready. So at 6 p.m., you are ready to start the Sabbath and not go and, and really rest and not do work. The, every, every ritual, especially in Leviticus, in, in numbers, points to saying, how intentional are you about the way that you worship? How intentional are you about prayer? How intentional are you about talking to God? How intentional uh, are you in preparing for worship on a Sunday? And, and in your Bible reading, whatever it may be, it's that question, how intentional are you? Now, there's prophetic significance of the Day of Atonement for Christians, all right. Uh, it, it pointed to the sinless life of our high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and, or sorry, 14 and 15, we're told that Jesus, our great high priest, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is important because Jesus lived and died in our place. And so to say that he went through the same things that we go through, but did not sin is significance that because Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus lived a representative life, a sinless life. And it was therefore a life of representative sinlessness. Jesus' obedience stands in the place of his people's sin. His his law keeping is counted as his law keeping is counted as law keeping of those who have faith in him. And I say this because um, when we look again of what we've just learned about Yom Kippur and the two goats and one being the one being of God and sacrificed and one being of the sins of the people and and being sent into the wilderness and seeing that sin disappear, the the picture that you see there is so much of that of Jesus in that life lived for uh, life lived a sinless life lived and in a way that he could stand in our place. Despite all the preparation, the high priest still had to offer sacrifices for his own sin, but Jesus did not because he was sinless and because he was sinless, he could offer himself as a covering for our sin. The second thing that we see is it pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus himself. The Day of Atonement was for the previous year, but not so with Jesus' sacrifice for sin. It was for all eternity. Every year, 
on this date, the people of Israel would look back and see all the sins that they had done and then ask for forgiveness. The high priest would read out all the different sins and as they, he read the name, and if you had committed, you hung your head in shame. So here we see the, the, the Day of Atonement. We see Jesus obviously taking it a little, it's, it looks a little differently. Because it's not for the past years. It's for eternity. Knowing that his son has covered, uh, his sin, sacrifice, has you covered. That doesn't mean, of course, go out and sin as much as you want, but it's recognizing that we are all imperfect, but also that we are all forgiven. I think it, you know, even in that, uh, if you're if you're looking at it, it, it points to our sinfulness as humans. Saying that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, is illustrated by the scapegoat itself. We hear that statement a lot, and in an Old Testament view, that is the scapegoat. It's freed by the sacrifice of another. But the high priest still laid hands on it and confessed the sins of the people. In other words, though we're forgiven, we're still guilty. The scapegoat refers to to someone blamed for the action of another. Today, it it is usually someone I blame for the wrong action I've taken. So it's important to understand that, of course, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, portrays you and me. We sinners who are to blame for the action that God took. When he came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus, the innocent one, died in our place so we who are guilty might go free. And I think that's a, a, we have to recognize that, right? Is yes, Jesus is sinless and we we are filled with sinfulness. But again, that Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I think that also helps us as we look out into our neighborhoods, understand a bit of the the culture in the world that we live in is often there's this picture of this holier than thou um people when when asked when when you ask people out in the world, what do you what can you tell us about Christ followers? They give this picture of, again, maybe they're just a little holier than thou or think they're better than everyone. And it's us recognizing today as we look at Yom Kippur that Christians aren't perfect, right? We're not perfect, just forgiven. But in that, it points to the complete redemption of God's people. On the Day of Atonement, the sins of the entire nation were covered. One day, the complete number of those who have been received, who have received Christ's atonement will also be complete. Those who are of faith are are the Israel of God. Romans 9, 7 says, not because they are descendants, sorry, not because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children, but those who believe are the children of Abraham. And that's in Galatians chapter 3, 7. Meaning, before Christ returns, there will be a movement uh, among the among the Jews, resulting in many coming to Christ. Zechariah chapter 13, 9 says, they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, these are my people. And and they will say, the Lord is our God. When the last person to reject Christ and the last person to accept Christ is done, he will return according to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. Many nations will be joined in the joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. And, and what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six will come to pass. All Israel will be saved. Now, this is a very important point where we just have to take a little, make a little footnote. There's a very dangerous thing out there called replacement theology, which suggests that the church has in fact replaced Israel. 
meaning Israel had its time, and now the church is has replaced that and been given its chance to follow God. I say that because that is a very dangerous theory, and one of the most dangerous things about it is if you believe that the church has replaced Israel, then you're saying that God doesn't keep his covenants. God doesn't keep his promises. I believe that Israel is God's chosen people. But I also believe, as we just read in Zechariah and in Romans, that other nations have been grafted in. What this means for the Jewish people is I do believe that there is going to be a revival. They will call on his name and I will answer them. I will say these are my people as uh, God refers to the people of Israel. I believe there will be a revival in the in the Jewish world where people will see Christ for who he was, the Messiah. But I also believe that that has to happen in our culture today as well. There's the old covenant, which is just referring to the first covenant. And then we've got the new covenant, which is through Christ's blood. And there's that recognition of that. God has not left or forsaken his people. He still has a great plan. I believe in this that we see that this points to the ultimate deliverance of God's people. We're saved from sin's penalty like the scapegoat. But also like the scapegoat, we still wander in the wilderness of this world. But let's remember the lesson from the Feast of Trumpets. The shofar was used on the Day of Atonement to announce the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, verse 9. When all the slaves were free, debts were forgiven, and the lands returned to the original owners. Everything was set back to how it was before the people messed up. When Jesus returns, he will set things back to how they were before we messed up. That's why there is that significance of the Day of Atonement for each and every one of us. That, that significance is, is that holiness is essential to my fulfilling of the call of, of God, the mission of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. In many ways, this is, is, this is a representation of Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. The priests represent the people of God and God to the people. We're called to do the same through prayer and witnessing to others so that others might experience their own personal day of atonement. The other thing that we see from this is salvation is something to be received because because of the sacrifice of Christ. A pastor once quote uh, told a story that said, what can I do to be saved? And, and the answer was, you're too late, which kind of shocked him. <laughs> the answer he gave was, you're about 2,000 years too late. What needed to be done for your salvation has already been done. You can't do anything about it. We don't get right with God based on what we do, but on what Jesus has done for us. There's nothing that you can do to be saved rather than recognizing that Christ did what Christ Christ did for you so that you may be saved. The choice is as always and has been for the story of this entire series on the journey is understanding the question, how do you respond to knowing that that ultimate sacrifice has already been made for you? That's how we go ahead again with representing God through prayer and witnessing so others might know their own personal day of atonement. 
And if you don't know Christ and you have friends who don't know Christ, for them, it's not just recognizing who God is, but recognizing and acknowledging what God did for them. That while they were still sinners, he sent his one and only son to die for them in that day of atonement so that they could choose to follow him and choose to believe. It's not something that we can just simply do through our actions, but it's something that Christ, it's us recognizing what Christ did for us. I think that's a good place to stop. I hope this has given you a whole lot more in depth on the Day of Atonement, the ritual and of the Old Testament. It's still celebrated today, the highest of the high holidays. But it gives us a little bit of a perspective of the Easter story and closing out and seeing how much of the Day of Atonement, the ultimate sin sacrifice, points to what Christ did for us. And so I hope we can recognize that and we can see kind of that larger picture of God's great plan and go out and live that called prayerful life of witnessing to others as well. So I'll leave it with for there. I'm excited because next week we are jumping into our new series, Fearless, which is looking at the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to tackle some hot button issues as well as we go through it. But I don't want to give too much away. So I will stop there and say, take care, have a great week, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us on the Luke Miller Podcast, part of Sunrise Digital Ministries at Sunrise Community Church in Fair Oaks, California. If you're wanting to know more about our digital ministries, you can download our app at the Google Play Store or the Apple Store, where you'll find Backshed Bible Study, Sunday Sermons, and the Luke Miller Podcast. If you've got questions about who Jesus is or what it means to be a Christ follower, we would love to connect with you. And you can send us a note at www.sunrise.church welcome, and we'll get you connected. Thanks again for joining us. Take care.